I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson, and in a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American empire and national security state operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Producers credits for this edition of Parallax Views. Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The War Nerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Fabian, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, and The Mayor, Framework, M-E-E-R, Framework. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, consider joining those listeners at the $10 tier or above at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And now, on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. Another Ukraine-centric episode. We're looking very deeply into this crisis, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. This time, joining us to cover the subject is John Pfeffer of Foreign Policy in Focus, which is part of the Institute for Policy Studies. I want to get right to that conversation Uh, But first, I want to say that this conversation covers a great deal of ground, and I can't really sum it up in this introduction, so you'll have to give it a listen. But we deal with a number of topics related to Russia, its actions, uh, what is going on with Vladimir Putin, what the future may hold, what this means for the world order, and much, much more. And with that in mind, let's get right to the conversation with John Pfeffer of Foreign Policy in Focus. Welcome back to Parallax Views, a guest that I've very very much wanted to have back on the show for some time now, John Pfeffer of Foreign Policy in Focus at the Institute for Policy Studies and author of the February 23rd, 2022 piece, Putin's Cold, Cold Strategy, Russia's aim is to create a frozen conflict in Ukraine, but time is not on Putin's side. How are you doing today? Doing good. Thanks for having me back on the show. So just to start out, what are we to make of this full-on invasion of Ukraine by Vladimir Putin and his justification for it, which to me is just very strange. I don't know anyone who is taking his claims about genocide in these two independent republics uh, seriously at all. Well, yeah, those are two tough questions. The first is, uh, you know, in terms of the invasion, 
I don't think too many people really expected that to happen. Um, I think the expectation was that Putin was building up forces around Ukraine as a kind of bargaining chip to get what he wanted from the West, which was uh, some uh, assurance that Ukraine would not join NATO uh, and that uh, there would be steps taken to include Russia in security conversations about the future of Europe. Um, now, it's possible that the U.S. and, the, and Europe did not provide the kind of diplomatic openings that might have uh, avoided this uh, invasion. But nonetheless, uh, obviously, Putin would, turned out to be much more of a risk taker than anybody expected. Um, and so that was a surprise. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, the justification for the invasion, yeah, I mean, it, there is no honestly, justification for what uh, Russia did. There was no genocide in the eastern regions of Ukraine. Uh, he also declared that the leadership of uh, Ukraine were uh, drug dealers and neo-Nazis. Um, so let's take those two issues separately. One, the question of genocide in the eastern regions of Ukraine. Um, certainly, there have been some concerns about from Russian speakers in those regions that their rights as Russian speakers were being abrogated. Uh, there was a law passed in Ukraine that basically made Ukrainian language the official language of business um, and of the state. Now, of course, the implementation of that law was another matter. Uh, even outside of the eastern regions, there were plenty of businesses that paid no attention to this whatsoever. And when um, uh, Zelensky, Vladimir Zelensky took over, uh, that became even less of an issue because Zelensky himself was a native Russian speaker uh, and he was certainly not you know, implementing this rule. Uh, and certainly within the eastern regions of Ukraine, that was not really a matter of concern. Uh, now, that would be the only issue that could be possibly grouped under this topic of genocide, you know, maybe cultural genocide. Um, certainly the lives of uh, Russian speakers was not being threatened, although there was and has been a, a conflict there, military conflict since 2014, uh, 2015, and certain, certainly people have lost their lives, but the threat has come equally from uh, Russian separatists, from the Russian government, and to a certain extent from the Ukrainian government, uh, but launched against military combatants, not against uh, population, civilian population. The second category, uh, which would be drug dealers and neo-Nazis. Uh, Putin has argued that the Zelensky government is basically just a front for neo-Nazis. Uh, and that is even further from the truth. I mean, Zelensky himself is Jewish. Uh, he comes from a libertarian party. Uh, the right sector, which is the extreme right political party in Ukraine, has not had any political representation in the Ukrainian parliament for some time. Uh, it has no influence over the Zelensky government. Um, yes, there have been, uh, and there still is, a neo-Nazi battalion in Ukraine, the Azov Battalion and Associated uh, military formations. 
that has had some, I would say, minor influence within the Ukrainian uh, military. But in general, uh, the Azov Battalion is uh, a fringe element within Ukraine uh, with almost no influence. Now, of course, during a wartime situation, a well-armed and dedicated battalion is going to have more influence. So, uh, of course, we're going to see in the unintended consequence of Putin's invasion that formations like the Azov Battalion are going to have uh, more influence on the ground. So then, what are we to make of this whole issue uh, that has come up about NATO expansion and that being uh, an issue for Russia? Is that uh, a, a real legitimate issue, or is it like the, um, you know, this issue of, of claims of genocide, where I, I think we can safely say those are, you know, just vastly uh, over-exaggerated, if we're being nice, but I, I would even say just bogus. Yeah, so with the, with the argument about NATO expansion, we are edging into uh, more legitimate uh, cause for Russian concerns. And I, I mean Russia in general, not just Putin specifically. Um, you know, the, there were some expectations, certainly on the Russian side, in the 1990s that NATO wasn't going to expand, that it would take uh, East Germany in, you know, because East Germany became part of Germany. So uh, that was, you know, that seemed to make some sense. But beyond that, NATO wasn't going to encroach on what had been uh, the Soviet sphere of influence, namely Eastern Europe, and, and certainly not members uh, or the former republics of the Soviet Union. Uh, but very quickly, that turned out to be very different. Um, the nations of Eastern Europe began to apply for NATO membership. There was some, uh, certainly some, um, I would say, enticements uh, on the part of uh, NATO and the U.S. government to encourage those countries to join NATO. Partly it was a matter of you know, providing military assistance, but also there was a kind of um, implicit assumption that if a country joined NATO, that was, say, a first step toward joining the European Union. Now, European Union membership meant a great deal for the countries of Eastern Europe. And if NATO membership was the first step toward that goal, they were going to do it. So uh, there certainly were some pressures coming from NATO to, to uh, bring those countries in. And that included not just Eastern Europe, but also countries that had previously been in the Soviet Union, namely the Baltic countries of Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. Now, the real point of contention was around not so much the Baltic countries, those are small countries after all, but around Ukraine and Georgia, which are much bigger countries, um, much more sizable uh, militaries. And the prospect of those two countries joining NATO was of grave concern uh, to Russia. And uh, even though it was not clear that either country would actually qualify for membership anytime soon, the prospect of those countries joining and then perhaps uh, subsequently joining the European Union as well uh, struck fear into the heart of, of Russia. Now, for people, why, for people mm -hmm, that are yeah. unfamiliar, why would that strike fear into Russia? Like, say, Ukraine joining NATO and then later the EU? Yeah. So two reasons, uh, or I mean, let's say three reasons primarily. One, of course, is the prospect of NATO 
military hardware deployed along the Russian border. Um, now, mind you, NATO, Russia already shares, uh, prior to, to even this conflict, uh, borders with NATO um, along the border with Norway, um, along the borders with the Baltic republics, and even with Poland, uh, the enclave of Kaliningrad shares a border with Poland. But uh, if Ukraine and Georgia were to join NATO, those would be substantial borders. And uh, NATO and Russia would begin to feel surrounded um, on not all sides. Russia is a huge country, but certainly uh, along its western flank. So that's one reason. Second reason would be uh, the presence of Russian um, ethnic Russians uh, in these border regions. And increasingly, Putin has uh, kind of identified a, um, a strategy of protecting the rights of Russian speakers in what Russia calls the near abroad, namely the, the countries that border Russia. And it has uh, historically stood up for those, uh, those communities, um, but it has also um, particularly um, raised these issues when it sees those country, those communities under threat whether those are imagined threats or real threats, threats of assimilation, of losing their identity as Russians. Uh, this is a major um, kind of talking point, if you will, for Russian nationalists. Uh, hitherto, say 2014, 2013, Putin wasn't really much of a nationalist. He was a Russian patriot, of course, but not much of a nationalist. The, the initial war with Ukraine really changed that. Uh, and increasingly, Putin has uh, has taken the ground from Russian nationalists and, and made it his own. And that also has been a substitute for uh, any other kind of claims for legitimacy, political legitimacy within the country. He can now claim that he is the nationalist of all nationalists and therefore preserve his popularity ratings among, among average Russians. So that's the second. The third would be the prospect of Russia... Uh, getting hit economically. For instance, if Ukraine were to reorient its entire economy, including its imports and exports, away from Russia and toward Europe, um, it, it means also the passage of important uh, pipelines supplying uh, Europe with Russian natural gas going through Ukraine. All of this would be at risk uh, if Ukraine were to turn substantially toward uh, Europe. Um, so those, I think, are the three major reasons, uh, Russia feeling surrounded by NATO, uh, Russia sticking up for Russian-speaking minorities, and it's near abroad, and the prospect of losing out economically were Georgia and Ukraine in particular to turn uh, their economies and their focus away from Russia and toward the West. With this issue of Russian-speaking minorities, the, the question has come up of how much of an issue is it if um, Ukraine is, is Ukrainian is the official language? Because I've talked to Ukrainian Americans about this who have been to Ukraine and say this really wouldn't even be that much of an issue for um, you know Russian-speaking Ukrainians. That it's uh, really been blown out of proportion. What are we to make of that? I, I would agree with that generally. Um, the problem, however, is not um, at the moment. At the moment, yes, it would be blown out of proportion. 
I think what Putin in particular is looking at are long-term trends. And the long-term trend is not favorable to uh, the survival, shall we say, of Russian culture inside Ukraine. Um, younger people are not learning Russian. Uh, the traditions uh, of the Russian community uh, are not being passed down. And the way to get ahead in Ukraine is increasingly through uh, fluency in Ukrainian and kind of an embrace of Ukrainian culture, if you will. Uh, that's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen next week. But it is a long-term trend. Then, of course, a war like this is only going to accelerate it as divisions within the society uh, become much more, uh, much stronger. So and for think, Putin, mm -hmm. he doesn't really consider this, you know, like Ukraine's choice. It, it seems like he considers Ukraine as, as part of Russia or should be part of Russia in his mind. Yes. Uh, and, you know, that is... That has come up in a number of documents that Putin has written recently. Again, it's not something that uh, we saw earlier, say, 5, 10, 15 years ago. This is not part of a kind of long-term plan of Vladimir Putin, that he came into office with the idea of absorbing Ukraine. Um, I think uh, initially the idea was there would be uh, a leader in uh, Ukraine who would be favorable to uh, Russia, somewhat like Lukashenko is in Belarus, and that uh, Russia wouldn't have to um, uh, contest with Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukrainian nationalists, Ukrainian patriots, what have you, uh, for the soul of Ukraine, if you will. But after the Euromaidan protests uh, and the, uh, the, you know, the, the, move against Yanukovych, who was obviously Russian-leaning leader of Ukraine at the time. Uh, we've seen a succession of non-Russian-leaning Ukrainian leaders that really, I think, emphasized in Putin's mind that uh, Ukraine was not pliable in the way that Belarus is pliable. Um, and so that really registered a shift in his thinking such that... Um, now he refers to Ukrainians as uh, the brothers of of Russia, and you know, as I've written, that kind of uh, family the, the relationship people is connected not with us by blood, right? I think that's the term exactly. he's used. Yeah, exactly. But go on. You were saying that relationship. That's not a healthy relationship. Not a healthy family relationship. If. Uh, if that's what you do to your brother, um, is you invade and insist that they kind of assimilate into Russia proper. Um, now, again, we have to distinguish between what are kind of Russian nationalist intentions and what are Russian imperialist intentions. Russian nationalist intentions uh, apply only to ethnic Russians. A Russian, an extreme nationalist could care less about non-Russians. I mean, they, they should not really be part of uh, the Russian body politic. Um, Russian imperialists, on the other hand, have a much more civic-minded, if you will, approach to what Russia should look like. And it should be multi-ethnic, uh, that it should absorb the influences of other countries on Russia's um, region, uh, Russia's near abroad. So to a certain extent, what Putin has done is he's joined together both the Russian nationalist approach and the Russian imperialist approach, so that he is uh, kind of bringing in the Russian-speaking members uh, of the Ukrainian body politic, absorbing that into the Russian ethnos, 
uh, but then absorbing Ukraine as a country into uh, the Russian empire. And so those are kind of two different things. I think what uh, the end game here, if we're looking for some kind of an end game, is that the imperialist effort will fail, um, that it will be impossible to absorb uh, Ukraine as a country into the Russian empire, uh, but it will be possible, possibly, uh, to absorb the Russian-speaking areas within Ukraine. So the eastern uh, sections, the Donbass, obviously Crimea already absorbed, but possibly also the land bridge in the south connecting Crimea to Russia proper. So then are, are there any historical analogies we can look at to better understand this event, um, including uh, Putin's past actions? So looking at historical uh, analogies, clearly Putin is acting in, in many ways like previous czars acted. Um, Peter the Great uh, was both Western-facing and imperialist in his, his vision. He wanted to bring in Western reforms. He wanted to uh, transform Russian society at that time along the model of Germany or, uh, or France. At the same time, he wanted to enlarge the Russian Empire. I think Putin is very similar in the sense that he wanted he wants to engage with the West. He certainly has been part of the global economy. Um, he sells uh, oil and gas to pretty much everybody, sells armaments to pretty much everybody, um, and has uh, participated in various uh, global efforts. For instance, the uh, the Iran nuclear negotiations to find some kind of a uh, rapprochement with Iran. Uh, so yes, he's still Western-facing in that sense, in the same way that, that Peter the Great was. But at the same time, he has his imperial ambitions, his, his ambition to enlarge, if not Russia territorially, then at least Russia in terms of its influence. Uh, and that could be its influence not only in the near abroad, but its influence as well in the Middle East. Uh, clearly, he has established a very close relationship with Assad in Syria, um, with China, um, as Putin has been reorienting his uh, energy infrastructure so that it doesn't simply supply Europe, but increasingly supplies China as part of China's Belt and Road Initiative, and even further um, afield in places like Venezuela uh, or in certain parts of Africa. So I think that's what you know, the, the historical analogy we have to look to here. So it's interesting. I was thinking of a, a speech that uh, Putin recently gave or comments Putin recently gave um, concerning a, a, a soldier um, on the Russian side that was, um, you know, killed. And, and he sort of talked about how, you know, I'm a Russian, but, you know, I, I also believe that, you know, uh, Russia is a multi-ethnic uh, country. And he started listing off uh, all the different ethnicities within Russia. and it's interesting because I think that shows how he's sort of, as you put it, uh, trying to combine these uh, Russian nationalist and Russian imperialist elements. Yeah, and there's been this tension between uh, what we might call Ruski and Rasiski in, uh, in Russian. Ruski means ethnic Russian and Rasiski means a citizen of Russia, regardless of what one's ethnicity might be. You could be Kazakh and you could be a Rasiski. You could be Armenian and Rasiski. You can be Chechen and Rasiski. 
Mayampi Ruski. Ruski is only for ethnic Russians. And there has been this tension all along in the Russian project between um, bringing together uh, a variety of different uh, ethnic groups under some kind of rubric. It could be the, the Tsarist Empire. It could be the Soviet Empire. It could be Putin's empire. Uh, but against that has been the kind of more narrow, the narrower vision of an ethnic Russia, which is um, uh, primarily white. Uh, so it, it does have its racist elements. Uh, and it is exclusive in terms of membership. Uh, and it is far more um, paranoid, shall we say, about uh, what, what the rest of the world thinks about Russia, uh, because it doesn't have a lot of tolerance for difference, shall we say. So then, in regards to uh, these breakaway republics, um, Donetsk and Luhansk, and I'm, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing those, but we're, we're talking about the Donbass. Um, what are we to make of what their futures could be? And also, if you could, uh, could you talk about uh, what you call frozen conflicts uh, that have been a thing since Putin has been in power? Sure. So, you know, these are regions, uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, uh, that border Russia. And uh, again, they are, aside from Crimea, the, the largest concentration of Russian-speaking people in Ukraine. Um, not exclusively so. There are plenty of Ukrainian-speaking people there, but, um, but still significant Russian minorities. Um, and uh, they, of course, uh, were the home to uh, separatist movements that in 2014, 2015, kind of asserted their independence, um, were certainly got help from uh, Russia, the so-called little green men who kind of passed over the border and provided uh, military assistance to uh, these separatist uh, struggles. In many ways, this re resembled similar efforts that took place in Georgia and Moldova um, when there were breakaway uh, efforts in Moldova, the, the Transnistrian movement, again, primarily Russian-speaking uh, minority, uh, and uh, South Ossetia and Abkhazia in uh, Georgia. Uh, Russia intervened there too on behalf of uh, breakaway regions and a kind of uh, status quo of what we call a frozen conflict was the result. Uh, by frozen conflict, what I mean is that um, neither side was able to definitively uh, establish control uh, over those regions. In other words, South Ossetia and Abkhazia remain uh, semi-independent today. They uh, are not absorbed into Georgia. They have not been absorbed into Russia. And virtually no country around the world recognizes them as independent states or a couple but, um, the same with Transnistria in Moldova. So uh, they, the conflict doesn't, is not ongoing. There's no warfare in those regions any longer, uh, but they effectively remain frozen. Um, their status is frozen, um, and uh, neither side, in the case of Russia and Georgia or Russia and Moldova, 
are able to assert complete control over those regions. It looks as if at this point, that might be the future for the Donbass, that it will, um, you know, what Russia wants, of course, what it, its demands are that Ukraine uh, basically cede uh, all control and all claims over both Crimea and the Donbass to Russia. Uh, and, but I'm not sure that's going to happen. I mean, that's been non-negotiable for the Ukrainians. Um, nevertheless, I mean, prior to the war breaking out, Crimea was effectively part of Russia. Russia built a bridge to connect it to the Russian mainland, uh, poured money into subsidies to bring the uh, standard of living up in Crimea, um, to bring Russian culture, language there in, in uh, en masse. Um, Donbass, a little bit more complicated because the conflict was ongoing. But if we look at uh, the future, we can imagine a kind of frozen conflict there as well, in which uh, the Donbass is not completely absorbed into Russia, but has, is, has some kind of marginal um, independence that not very many countries around the world recognize, uh, and that Ukraine will continue to kind of claim those areas as part of Ukraine, but uh, will not militarily try to absorb those those regions. Um, obviously, as part of the Minsk agreements that you know were, were uh, agreed to in order to bring the ceasefire to the Donbass, Ukraine did agree to kind of allow for a certain amount of autonomy in those regions. And that, again, might be on the table um, if we can get to that point. Uh, that is a, but that's a big question mark. That's what I was going to ask about next was, I mean, are we past the point of, you know, diplomacy being able to, you know, slow this down or stop it? Well, you know, we're never past the point of diplomacy. I mean, you know, if we look at wars in the past, have been conducted with, you know, um, great uh, severity, have yielded huge numbers of conflicts, uh, I'm sorry, huge numbers of casualties, and yet there still has been opportunities for diplomacy to bring an end to those conflicts. Um, the Korean War, for instance, you know, clearly a stalemate after three years of conflict between North and South Korea with you know, various countries on either side supporting them, and um, an armistice agreed, and an armistice that holds today, so that the war in some sense has never ended. Um, negotiations to end the war in Vietnam, I mean, th that was a horrific struggle. Um, but again, a kind of a, a certain kind of a stalemate that took place there and negotiations uh, between parties that, you know, committed atrocities uh, against one another. One can imagine that that would happen here uh, as well. We were only two weeks into this conflict. Uh, I don't think we are past the point of diplomacy. Um, the real challenge here is how much uh, Russia will kind of endure uh, in terms of uh, the impact of the sanctions, which are beginning to hit not just um, you know the, the targeted people you know, in, in the, that the sanctions have identified, either members of the elite uh, or you know oligarchs of one sort or another, but the average Russian, because the the ruble is in free fall, and um, you know the average Russian is worried about you know whether they can secure the, the just average um, uh, 
uh, consumer goods uh, in the coming months and rising prices for energy, et cetera. That's going to have an impact on the political future of Putin and whether you see just a, a handful of people out on the street protesting that government or huge numbers of people out on the street desperate because of economic uh, deprivation. That will either either that or resistance, obviously on the ground by Ukrainian forces, uh, will possibly force Putin's hand at the negotiating table. Uh, at the moment, the Russian side is basically offering non-negotiable demands. Uh, but if we see some kind of uh, change in those demands, then we will understand that Putin is under some kind of pressure to to bring this conflict to an end. What are we to make so far of the way in which the U.S. and its allies have responded? I know um, your colleague at Foreign Policy and Focus, Phyllis Bennis, has voiced concerns about um, you know arming civilians in Ukraine, and uh, there's also been a lot of uh, debate about sanctions. What are we to make of sanctions, uh, arming of civilians, and, and things of that nature? Of course, the United States has been reluctant to commit troops uh, on the ground. Ukraine is not a member of NATO, so there is no obligation to come to its defense by NATO members. Um, however, the United States has increased its military assistance to Ukraine. It has also uh, not only implemented its own sanctions against uh, the elite in Russia, but also uh, rallied its allies to kind of uh, make as watertight a uh, sanction system as possible. Um, from my point of view, and before I go on to the question of, of uh, military assistance, uh, there has to be some kind of um, penalty, uh, some kind of um, negative incentive, shall we say, <laughs> to uh, force Russia to negotiate. Um, if we're not going to be intervening militarily, uh, then sanctions really remain the most potent weapon, um, non-military weapon, for uh, twisting Russia's arm. Uh, Putin's arm in this case. Um, now, there are a variety of different kinds of sanctions. Uh, and I think for the most part, the United States has been, well, shall we say, targeted in its approach. Uh, I'm willing to kind of reconsider on a case-by-case -case basis if, if it turns out that certain sanctions are preventing, um, you know, uh, you know, Russians in need of medical assistance from getting the necessary medicines, as was the case, for instance, with sanctions against Iran, uh, or uh, really causing a spike in hunger amongst the most marginalized within Russia. Um, but to, to date, at least, and again, we're only talking about a couple of weeks, uh, we haven't seen those kinds of results from the sanctions. Um, so uh, I think, you know, it, it, again, I, I think the the sanctions play a very important role in demonstrating that uh, the United States and other countries are not only coming to the, the defense of Ukraine rhetorically, but are, are standing with Ukraine in more significant ways. In terms of armed uh, delivery of arms, or say a no-fly zone, of course, we're getting into a more difficult realm here. Um, Russia has said that a no-fly zone, for instance, would be tantamount to a declaration of war. 
Uh, and we certainly don't want to be getting into an out-and-out war with Russia, especially since Putin has put his nuclear forces on, on alert. Um, and uh, we don't want the war in Ukraine to spread uh, to adjoining regions. Um, on the other hand, we do want to, you know, demonstrate that, uh, that Ukraine is not just going to roll over. Uh, and here the historical analogy that I go back to is the Spanish Civil War uh, in the 1930s when the Spanish Republic, and here we're talking about a democratic government, were, was resisting the fascists, the Franco forces within the Spanish military. And it got no support from European powers. Uh, the Republicans didn't get any support because the European powers basically signed a, a non-intervention agreement. Meanwhile, the other side, the fascists, were getting plenty of support from the Germans and from the Italians. Of course, the Republicans did get some support from the Soviets, but not, not much. And because they were so completely outgunned, there was no hope for the Republicans uh, to survive. And Franco won and the fascists ruled for four decades. That's not the kind of situation we want repeated in Ukraine. We do not want a situation in which uh, the Ukrainian forces, which are, which are defending a democracy, roll over in, in the face of, uh, of an intervention by a government that I consider effectively fascist, and for Ukraine to then you know, be under fascist rule for even a couple of years, much less four decades. So, you know, we have to learn from those examples of, uh, of what happened to the Republicans in, in the 1930s in Spain and act accordingly. Real quick on the issue of uh, sanctions. I, I guess some people voice the concern of how this will, uh, as you put it, uh, maybe affect marginalized people in, in Russia, the most marginalized, and how it could affect um, everyday Russians who aren't, you know, this, this wasn't their choice. Uh, and I think we should make that clear. That was this was Putin's choice to invade, and I guess some people have voiced the concern that uh, this could actually bolster nationalist sentiments in Russia, or at the very least, if not bolster, you know, support for for Putin or nationalism. It could uh, create more um, anti-U.S. sentiments in Russia in the long run. Is there any reason to be concerned about that? Those are certainly legitimate concerns. Uh, and, you know, the best scenario is a South African scenario in which uh, Russians say, look, you know, we don't support the war, we don't support Putin, and we support sanctions. We support sanctions against this, you know, criminal elite. Uh, now, did all of South Africa support you know, sanctions against South Africa? No, of course not. Uh, you know, certainly the, the Boers didn't. And there were plenty of other people who were not happy with the sacrifices they had to make because of sanctions on apartheid in South Africa. Um, so it's not going to be everybody in Russia who are who's going to support these sanctions. But I do think it would be very powerful if the Russian anti-war movement uh, took that position. Uh, I also think that uh, Western powers have to be sensitive in the type of sanctions that they implement, and they have to be clear that these are sanctions that are directed on a war-making machine, not against average people. It might have impact on average people. That's inevitable. Um, but so does this get into, mm -hmm. not to interrupt you, but does this get into mm -hmm. the difference between maybe broad-based versus 
targeted sanctions? Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, there there can be and there have been very targeted uh, sanctions, for instance, on, you know, the ability of an oligarch uh, to travel, you know, to UK, to the UK, uh, to purchase an apartment for millions of dollars in France for um, for people within Putin's circle to park enormous amounts of money in Swiss banks. Um, those are very targeted sanctions. Are those, are those going to affect your average Russian? Not really. Um, is, uh, is the fall of the ruble going to affect the average Russian? Yes. But, uh, you know, the, the question really is, um, are we talking about um, a, an inconveniencing of the Russian population, or are we talking about, you know, an endangering of the Russian population? And so, of course, I'm going to favor, you know, those sanctions which are on the inconveniencing side, not on the endangering side. It sounds like there's no, it sounds like there's no, you know, absolutely perfect way to deal with this. Like someone is, is going to be inconvenienced, maybe even hurt in some way by this. And yeah, you're right. There, there are no perfect sanctions in the sense of um, uh, only harming the people who do harm. You know, if, if no, such sanctions have never been able to, uh, to be developed. So there is going to be some, uh, some damage uh, beyond that spreads through society. It's really a question of um, ensuring that, that, that the collateral impact is minimal. Um, and that the uh, targeted impact is maximal. There's been a lot of talk about, I, I think even Biden at one point recently said that, uh, you know, we know what this is really about. This is about reconstructing or reconstituting uh, the Soviet Union. In your article, and I, I know it's been a few weeks since that article came out, you uh, state pretty unequivocally that you don't think Putin is after, you know, world domination and that he's even leery of reconstituting the Soviet Union. Could you comment on that a little bit? Sure. Um, you know, Putin's not stupid. Uh, he might be a risk taker. He might have become uh, somewhat unhinged during the, the, the COVID crisis. But I mean, it, it could I, even, mm-hmm. not, not to interrupt you, but it could even mm-hmm. just be, um, you know, he's infected with hubris. <laughs> yes, well, he definitely is hubristic and has been hubristic since he took over in 1999. Uh, so that has been constant. Uh, his desire from, from 1999 until today, even till today, has been largely focused on you know, the, the Russian communities that are arrayed around uh, this, the, the Russian border. Um, and in the Baltics, in Ukraine, in Georgia, and Kazakhstan. Um, he knows that uh, there would be considerable resistance to any attempt to reconstitute the Soviet Union. Uh, he might harbor some kind of desire to see some voluntary uh, association emerge, but even the efforts to create a kind of security pact have been fitful, to say the least, uh, with some countries joining and other countries falling out. Um, If he can hold on to Belarus in terms of a a good relationship, I think that would be the best case scenario, Belarus and Kazakhstan. Um, Beyond that, no. Uh, It it would be a really 
um, a, a tough lift to, uh, to, to bring the other former members of the Soviet Union back into some kind of a Russia-dominated sphere. Um, I think it's much easier for him to neutralize these countries rather than to make them into uh, direct allies um, under his, you know, under his uh, imposed will. By uh, neutralization, what I mean is that they simply are caught in amber, that they can't move closer to the West, they, re they refuse to move closer to Russia, and so they are stuck in a kind of halfway house. Uh, and they can be manipulated one way or another, sometimes successfully, sometimes not so successfully, uh, but they are effectively not uh, U.S. allies. Uh, in, they're not NATO members. They are not uh, completely turned their face to the West. Uh, that's what I mean by neutralization, and that's what I think is ultimately Putin's strategy here. So the last thing I wanted to touch upon, uh, in your article, uh, you essentially, by the end of it, say that, you know, ultimately, uh, Putin is a dead autocrat walking. He's a dead autocrat walking, and that he's essentially playing um, from an antiquated 20th century playbook of territorial acquisition, fossil fuel dependency, and would-be totalitarian control of the population. You're essentially saying uh, time is not on his side, that his country's economy is dependent on, uh, you know, fossil fuels. So uh, what are we to make of all this? Could you expand on why uh, time doesn't appear to be on Putin's side? Sure. And now, of course, this all is a matter of what time frame we're looking at. As I said in the piece, that 20th century kind of geopolitical vision it's not dead yet. I mean, we still are addicted to fossil fuels. There are still countries that successfully pursue their territorial ambitions. And there certainly are countries that aspire still today to totalitarian control of, of their populations. Um, but increasingly, that is not the trend we're looking at. I mean, countries are uh, as quickly as possible trying to break their addiction to fossil fuels. Um, territory is no longer... Uh, kind of the be-all and the end-all for a, a nation-state, uh, and it's say indicative of its power in the geopolitical system. And in an age of um, you know uh, internet access, it's extraordinarily difficult to uh, impose totalitarian control over a population. Um, all of which is to say that um, in the the medium term, five to ten years as Putin ages and he will turn 70 this year, uh, the world is not conforming to his vision of it. It's moving in a very different direction. And he may try his damnedest to, uh, to kind of stand up to the trends of history. Uh, he will, for instance, make an alliance with the Chinese so that he can uh, maintain his, the dominance of, of fossil fuels in his economy and uh, you know, it continues to be a source of strength for the Russian economy. Um, he will you know, shut down every independent source of information uh, for Russians. Um, and, uh, and as we see, he will try to control territory in, in Ukraine. But that's not the future for Russia. And if Russia has a future, um, and uh, it's got to be a future that is beyond Putinism. It's a future that 
sees a different economic base for the economy, one that uh, involves citizens in some form of democracy. It doesn't have to be a liberal democracy, but certainly a democracy that is more viable than what we see in Russia today. And I, I think we should note real quickly here, because I've noticed, uh, and I'm not saying these polls uh, tell us everything, but uh, there were uh, polls that I think came out in The Economist recently, um, where a lot of Americans apparently, when they were polled, believed that Russia is still a communist country. I don't <laughs> think that's the case. And everyone should be aware. It's, I mean, it is a capitalist country. Yeah. That's correct. Um, although I, I would say that it, it's... Um, in many ways, a corporatist economy. In other words, it's a fusion of the government and state capitalism. Uh, in prior eras, we would have called that a fascist economy, uh, but I leave it up to experts to, you know, to put it in the proper category. Um, and, and, I, and speaking of public opinion polls, we, I, I need to mention that you know, Putin, at least up until this war, was relatively popular. Uh, within Russia itself. Now, mind you, his his uh, rankings were slipping uh, over the last year or so. But if we go back a couple of years prior to COVID, for instance, uh, he usually enjoyed about a seventy percent popularity rating. Which, you know, if a president had that in the United States, they'd be delighted. Um, now, I should also say that routinely in public opinion polls, Russians will say seventy uh, percent, roughly, of Russians will say that. Uh, Stalin actually was pretty good for the Soviet Union. Um, so there's kind of a parallel between the number of people who think Putin's pretty good and the number of people who thought that Stalin was pretty good. So uh, so that is a major caveat. And as I said, ca- uh, Putin's popularity rating has declined closer, say, to 50 or 60 percent. And so, you know, uh, part of that has to do with... Um, a, an erosion of living standards in uh, Russia. Uh, part of it has to do with uh, a lot of um, videos that were distributed on the internet by the Russian opposition, uh, revealing the corruption of top officials, including Putin and um, and, and oligarchs. And that has had an effect uh, in eroding Putin's popularity within the country. Um, so kind of looking forward, you know, you could see this invasion of Ukraine as really a last gasp of this 20th century vision of Putin, of, of this kind of essential Putinism, uh, an attempt to bolster his popularity, an attempt to kind of uh, secure his legacy in terms of an expanding Russian uh, sphere of influence, uh, and an effort, a kind of convenient way of asserting even more totalitarian control over the population. But um, from my point of view, this is, say, the it really is the last gasp, uh, that we will see um, much greater opposition within the country uh, and uh, a recognition, ultimately, that Russia cannot tie its fortunes to a 20th century uh, vision of itself, that it has to enter the 21st century, however it decides it wants to do that. I mean, there are plenty of paths to a to a to a you know a new energy future for Russia, a new political system, a new structure of the economy. I mean, we're not talking about some kind of you know Washington-imposed neoliberalism, for instance. Russia has to come to this by itself, but that has to be uh, something that you know one hopes the Russian opposition 
uh, and a much more broad-based Russian opposition can, can put together uh, using the anti-war movement perhaps as the, uh, the wedge issue to really uh, increase the, its popularity throughout the country. So in conclusion, I, I think this is a confusing moment for a lot of people. I think people that uh, grew up maybe seeing the um, preventive wars of, of George W. Bush and who opposed those um, didn't see another country doing essentially the same thing. And that's been confusing uh, for many people, especially younger people on the left. I think a lot of people are confused about should we have no fly zones or or shouldn't we? And yet more people, uh, you know, are, I think, uh, debating, you know, why do we talk about uh, this war, but not say um, what is happening in Yemen? How are we to make sense of, you know, everything in some? I mean, it, it seems like this is actually opening up um, broader conversations about what the future should look like. And I'm, I'm just wondering what you think of that and uh, how you think we should talk about these matters going forward. Yeah, well, so first I would say that every war is an opportunity for us to build a stronger anti-war position, uh, anti-war coalition. Um, it should have happened with Yemen, should have happened with Syria, should have happened with Iraq and Afghanistan. And to a certain extent, it did. Uh, but now we have the Ukraine war, and this is an opportunity as well to strengthen and it, it our doesn't mean we have to forget Yemen either. Exactly. Exactly. And in fact, it, it, quite the opposite. It means that we have to uh, redouble our efforts to end that war as well. Um, so th that's number one. Number two, you know, another kind of critical moment here is uh, is recognizing that we have these international problems and we do not have the international institutions that are sufficient to handle those problems. Um, you know, that's why we end up falling back on something like NATO as the answer to the problem of, uh, of Russia's you know, invasion of Ukraine. In a better world, we would have truly international institutions that could respond, uh, UN institutions. Um, the same applies to climate change, where we have an international problem, but not really the sufficient international infrastructure for dealing with that. Same holds true for the pandemic, where you know we saw such an inequality of response there. Um, this is a moment, again, where we have to ask ourselves, what are we willing to sacrifice at a national level in order to build those international institutions? Um, and then in terms of... Uh, you know, the, the disparity in response, uh, say, between um, how journalists have uh, responded to the war in Ukraine versus the war in Yemen. Um, I mean, that is a, it, definitely a legitimate criticism. Um, and there have been a number of journalists who, for instance, have just expressed an enormous amount of shock that civilized uh, people are being bombed suggesting that uncivilized people were being bombed in, in other conflicts. And that is certainly something that uh, speaks to the continued division between the global South and the global North. Um, you know, this has been the most important division um, dictating, you know, the, the disparity of resources 
since the end of the Cold War, and it is, continues to be one that has not been addressed. And we see it come up again and again, uh, whether it's the insufficiency of, of assistance for countries in the global South to make a transition to a clean energy future, uh, or the inability of countries in the global South to acquire not just the, uh, the necessary um, treatments uh, and uh, vaccines for COVID-19, but the technologies to produce their own um, vaccines. Uh, and we see it, of course, in the, uh, the larger question of global economic inequality and the amount of debt, for instance, that the Global South continues to, to labor with, labor under. Um, so this is the, the third issue, which is addressing the, um, the huge gap between the Global South and Global North, and one which to be honest, you know, we, we, we talk about climate justice, but that climate justice is largely within national boundaries. So it's climate justice within the United States or climate justice within Europe, such that in the European Green Deal, the poorer countries uh, within Europe are given additional assistance. So it's always climate justice that ends at water's edge. And that is the challenge for us going forward, is to, to end this um, essentially a, a, an apartheid, a global apartheid between North and South. We cannot move forward on any of these issues until we address that, that huge question. Why do you think it's so difficult to imagine that, uh, I, I would say, better world? And what I mean by that is, I think the sort of international order we have now has sometimes been caught with its pants down, uh, so to speak. I mean, it seems like human rights violations by um, certain U.S. allies have often been overlooked. But that also doesn't mean that we immediately have to go and say, oh, well, that means Russia must be the good guy or, or this country mm -hmm. must be the good guy. Why is it we have so much trouble getting to that point where we're truly a more equitable and internationally cooperative world? I mean, is it just mm -hmm. a, a lack of imagination? Well, uh, I mean, it might be a lack of imagination. I can't speak to that. But I can say that it is generally easier uh, for our human minds to focus on a single enemy or a single problem um, and to uh, reorient our worldview according to that. Um, so it could be that the Soviet Union was the principal enemy Russia is the principal enemy today, or China is the principal enemy, or conversely, the United States is the great devil in the world, or Islam is the great devil in the world. It's a, a recourse to single causality, toward, to one thing being the, the principal reason for all of the problems in the world. But we know that the problems in the world are multi-causal, uh, that everyone bears responsibility. Everyone bears responsibility. I mean, some bear more responsibility than others, but we are all in this boat, and it is our responsibility uh, to both address the problems and also recognize our part in creating the problems. Um, that's a challenging thing to do, and, and when we do that, it becomes more difficult to identify solutions, because if we have a single cause, we say, well, there's a single solution. We just deal with China deal with the United States. But when there are multiple causes, then we break down. We think, well, well, how do we order that? What's more important? What do we deal with first? That's a challenge, but that is reality. <laughs> That's what we got to do. And uh, 
You know, it's, it's, it's kind of the difference between, you know, being on the street and saying, you know, this is bad, stop this, whatever it is, stop A, and being in government, let's say a progressive government, and realizing that there are, you know, there's give and take, there are, uh, there are priorities, there have to be, you know, uh, decisions, hard decisions made about where money goes, because it's not an unlimited amount of money. You have to make those decisions. You have to recognize there are multiple variables in operation there. Um, similarly, we have to do the same thing. When we're on the streets, when we're writing policy papers, when we're helping our Ukrainian friends, whether we're, when we're helping our Yemeni friends, we have to recognize there are multiple variables, multiple problems, and we have to deal with this real-world issue of, uh, of you know, prioritizing and assessing and, and making the hard decisions. Well, thank you again, John Pfeffer. I know we went a little bit over and I appreciate your staying on. How can my listeners uh, keep up with your work? So they can go to Foreign Policy and Focus, uh, fpif.org, uh, sign up for our newsletter. Um, and uh, yeah, also we have a new project called Global Just Transition, uh, also globaljusttransition.org under FPIF, uh, where you can get the latest on our work on climate change and climate uh climate justice as well well that does it for this edition of parallax views i hope you learned something from my conversation with john pfeffer please keep up with his work at foreign policy in focus which is part of the institute for policy studies as always if you support the work i'm doing especially at a time like this please consider supporting me at patreon.com slash parallax views one more time that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. There is a $1, $10, and $100 tier. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. To Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say, don't do it. Just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that. Uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff. It's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.